0: We're back in Matthew chapter 6, so do grab a Bible. You will need to be able to see it. That will really help you. If you uh, need to grab a Bible, you'll find some on the trolleys by the door, so without any embarrassment, do just go and grab one of those. Matthew 6, page 811. Uh, We're looking together this evening, particularly at the first half of the Lord's Prayer. We're going to finish it off next week, so do plan to come back next week for the second half, first half of the Lord's Prayer. I'll read from verse 5 to remind us of some of the things we looked at last week. Matthew chapter 6 verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together for God's help. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it does show us Christ. We have here the words of Christ. We pray that as we listen to him teach us how to pray, you would help us to pray bigger. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this evening we're uh, thinking together about powerful words, powerful words. I, um, I was on chat GPT this week. Anybody else been fiddling around on chat GPT? New AI bot. It turns out you can actually put into it, um, please write a sermon on the Lord's Prayer, and it produces a sort of passable set of points. So that's what I've got. No, it's not. Uh, John and I were on a preaching conference this past week, and the sort of joke at these preaching conferences is that the churches unfortunately get the worst sermons of the year at the end of a preaching conference because all the preachers have been too busy talking about preaching to prepare sermons. So, ChatGPT, sort of tempting. Um, But no, I didn't ask it to give me a sermon, I asked it to tell me the 10 greatest speeches in human history, speeches that have changed the world, and you'd be able to guess probably almost the whole list. Uh, So, for example, there were a couple there from Abraham Lincoln, of course, including the famous Gettysburg Address, just 272 words, but uh, powerful words about freedom and democracy, uh, very precious in the United States. A couple, of course, from Winston Churchill. All I have to offer are blood, sweat, toil, and tears, and all the rest of it. Of course, Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream, and a few others. Those speeches deserve their fame, don't they? They really have shaped human history. And the crowds that gathered, for example, to hear Martin Luther King would never forget what he said. They'd never forget what they heard that day. But what if the most powerful Most world changing words ever spoken by mortals were spoken in secret. Uh, The Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 here in this version is, by my count, could be wrong, but 57 words long, I think, in the Greek, or 52 in the English here of the ESV. So it's, it's short, isn't it? It's a short prayer, it's very simple. We just reminded ourselves of what we thought about last week, which is that Jesus encouraged us to pray simple prayer. Now, Speaking to a father who cares about you and who knows what you need, that means that you don't have to pile up words and build fancy persuasive arguments. You can speak very simply. So this is a very simple prayer, but it is dynamite, isn't it? I mean, these are world-changing words when they're prayed in faith. Before we get to the prayer, just a few thoughts on why Jesus gave this prayer to us. For example, is it supposed to be the only prayer that we pray? Well, no, we have several other prayers recorded for us in the Bible, don't we? Are we supposed to pray this prayer in the exact form it's given us here? Well, that is a very, very good thing to do. We pray it together during most of uh, usually in our morning services. And uh, lots of Christians, maybe uh, many of us here, include this in their daily prayer. So, if if you never pray it yourself in this form, then why not start that habit today? And I'll give a, a few reasons to do so right at the end of our time. But there are other ways of using the prayer. Some have found it helpful, for example, to use each line of the prayer as a sort of a heading and then to spend, to enjoy some time with their Heavenly Father exploring that theme using it to provoke ideas for praise and thanks and confession and request. And so, for example, we could take the first line, our Father in heaven, and then we could spend a few minutes praising God for being our Heavenly Father, thinking about everything we love about His fatherhood of us, praising and thanking Him for the joy of adoption into His family, and so on and so on. And and when we're feeling dry in our praying, that can be so enriching. It certainly expands our prayers, And that's a good practice because I think Jesus is doing more here than just giving us a set form of words to say. He's giving us here a set of priorities. Big things that are to characterize our praying. Big things God thinks we should care about. The biggest things of all. So as we walk through this prayer this week and then next week as well, let's compare this prayer with the sorts of prayers that we're finding ourselves praying. Do I pray pray about and care about the sorts of things that Jesus thinks I should pray about and care about? And the question for this evening, as we focus on the first half of the prayer, is really this, are my prayers big enough? Are they bold enough? If my prayers were answered... Would it change the world? Let's pick out uh, two features of the first half of this prayer together. What is this prayer teaching us about how to pray? And Here's the first feature. We're being encouraged here, I think, to pray God-centered prayers. It is a radically God-centered prayer, this, isn't it? Have a look down with me at verse 9 and 10. These are very familiar words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my, 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 but your, your, your. Okay, it gets into our, our, our in the second half of the prayer. We'll get to that. But this prayer begins with the Lord. It's a challenging prayer to pray because we all have an inner me monster, an inner me monster. You know what I mean by that? You you ever had a conversation with someone and you realize that all they want to do is talk about themselves? And when the conversation veers off elsewhere, they're very skilled at bringing it back to themselves. And on and on and on they go about themselves until finally they ask you a question about yourself and you rejoice. They turn to you and they say, anyway, that's quite enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? (laughs) Now, if you've never met a person like that, maybe it's you. By nature, it's all of us, isn't it? We're all good at being self-absorbed. So, so this prayer is confronting, isn't it? It is radically God-centered. It's his name, his kingdom, his will, not my name, my kingdom and my will, which is what we're often so preoccupied with. And this change of thinking and change of praying is what it means to become a Christian. Allegedly, the preacher John Stott was once asked in the, in the barber's chair or somewhere, what it means to become a Christian. I have to say, I can never think of anything quick or clever to say in those situations. If I'd been asked, I'd have garbled something vague and waffly, I think, but Stott was a, a better man. He's supposed to have thought for a moment and then said something like, becoming a Christian means the Lord Jesus moving into the center of your life and moving you to the edge. The Lord Jesus moving into the center of your life and moving you to the edge. Now." Whether or not Stott said that, it's true, isn't it? It's the moment that in our lives, God takes center stage. His will, His work, His glory become the things that matter most. Or rather, it's the moment that we realize they were always the things that mattered the most. We just couldn't see it. Do you remember learning about the Copernican revolution at school? This chap, Copernicus, argued that the old model of understanding the heavens with the earth at the center was wrong. Presumably, if you'd been at school before his kind of day and you were asked to sketch the solar system, you'd have the earth in the middle and everything else orbiting around it. Of course, we, we naturally think of ourselves as the center of the universe. But Copernicus and others discovered that the Earth wasn't the center of the solar system at all. The center of the solar system was the sun, and everything else orbited around that. Becoming a Christian is a sort of a a spiritual Copernican revolution. The Holy Spirit comes into my life and he opens my eyes to the truth that I'm not the center of reality. God is. I'm not the most glorious being in all reality. My name isn't the most precious name in all reality. My plans and my purposes aren't the most important plans and purposes in all reality. I'm a kind of distant planet. The sun at the center of the solar system of reality is the Lord God Almighty. So what matters most in the cosmos isn't, first of all, what matters most to me, but what matters most to him. The name, the the, the character, the reputation that really matters, the kingdom and the will that really matters aren't mine but His. So this prayer here is cutting with the grain of reality. I'm asking God to bring about that which is right in His world. And what is right, what is most right of all, is that the universe hallow His name. That is, revere His character, treat Him as Glorious and wonderful and beautiful and holy. That his kingdom come. That the world comes to bow before his rightful rule at the throne of the Lord Jesus on his return. And that his will be done. That every creature fashioned by his hand joyfully serves him. We're just getting here in tune with reality. You know Someone becomes a Christian and, and their friends and family are worried that they've, they've lost their mind. But in becoming a Christian, in bowing to Christ, they haven't lost their mind, they've recovered it. Their thinking has been brought back into line with reality. Reality is God-centered, it's Christ-centered. And so this prayer is God-centered. And so we ask, don't we, of we're a Christian here, are my prayers God-centered? Or are they me-centered? Are they full of my, my, my? Or your, your, your? And more than a kind of stick to beat ourselves with, I think this is about an encouragement to see how much more exciting it is to pray your, your, your than my, my, my. And that, that's because of the second thing. Secondly, I think we're being encouraged here to pray God sized prayers, God centered prayers, but also God sized prayers. Don't you find it exciting how big the first half of this prayer is? What Jesus is telling us to ask for here is huge. These are God sized things. Only God could do them. And the opening line teased that up for us. We're praying, notice, to our Father in heaven. He's our Father. We thought a bit about what that means last week. In fact, go through the Sermon on the Mount and you'll see what it means that God is a father to his children. It means that he cares. He, he loves us. He wants to hear from us. And he's our Father in heaven. He's the Lord God Almighty. He can do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine. This is the one to whom we pray. Last week we heard Jesus warn us away from. Show off religion. Don't bother, he's saying, with show off religion and you're praying and you're giving or in any other way because show off religion only impresses people on earth. And they're not really worth impressing, it seems to be Jesus' point. You know, praying to the crowd is pointless. What can they give you? What reward can they give you? But what about praying to a father in heaven? Think what a heavenly father can do. Think what prayers he can answer. Think what problems he can solve. We often say, don't we, that prayer is powerful. And what we mean isn't that prayer itself is powerful, you know, like a sort of magic formula, like abracadabra. Prayer in itself isn't powerful, is it? God is powerful. Uh, John Piper described prayer as fusing our feeble wire to the lightning bolt of heaven. Fusing our feeble wire to the lightning bolt of heaven. The, the power isn't in the prayer or the prayer. It's in the person to whom we pray. And when we realize the sheer scale of God's massive power, we're going to pray big, God-sized prayers. I mean, take the first request there. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed isn't a word we often use. It's uh, similar to the word Holy. We're asking God to cause the world to treat his name as holy, as sacred, as special. And God's name here and throughout the Bible, his name is shorthand for who he is. Think with me about names for a moment. Apparently, teachers have a, a terrible time trying to choose names for their newborn children because every name they can think of has some association from the classroom, and often it's bad. So, you know, they they used to like the name Jessica, for example, picking names at random, until they taught a really naughty girl called Jessica who would never behave. And now that's all they can think of when they hear the name. They can't possibly think of calling their child Jessica. The name comes to represent something. It means something. And of course, it works the other way, too. You know, imagine a a young man who, who falls madly in love with a woman. And let's say her name is Jessica. And when he thinks of the name Jessica, he thinks of her. It represents everything that she is to him, her, her beauty, her smile, her tenderness, her sharp wit, her inner strength, whatever it is. And someone laughing about the name Jessica will hurt him because that name is precious. In a similar way, it's why it stings for the Christian to hear God's name used as a swear word, isn't it? We, we don't just throw God's name around, we don't like others doing it because it represents him, everything that he is to us, everything he is in his beauty, his glory, his preciousness. He is the Lord, gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. His name is holy. And so what we're asking here is that God's name be revered and honored and loved and worshipped everywhere. And that's going to take a miracle, isn't it? Can you bring that about? If you have the privilege of working among Uh, people who don't know the Lord Jesus in your workplace, if you're right there on the front line with the good news of the Lord Jesus, how do your colleagues feel about the name of the Lord? Do they revere him? Do they love him? Do they worship him? Do they treat him as the most wonderful, most praiseworthy, most glorious being in all of creation? Maybe some do. I suspect most of them don't. And though you would love them to, what can you do about that? On your own, not very much. Expand that. What would it take to persuade the whole world that there is no name more glorious or more wonderful than the name and character of the Lord? It would take a miracle. This prayer is asking for a miracle. Lord, what I long for is that all over the world, your name, your character, your glory would be treated with the love and respect you so deserve. And the next two requests are hardly smaller, are they? What are we asking for when we pray, your kingdom come? We're praying for the end of the world. You realize that? When you pray, your kingdom come. In one sense, the kingdom has already come, hasn't it? Back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel in chapter 1, Jesus is introduced to us as the son of David, the Messiah. Here is God's king bringing God's kingship to earth. And whenever someone bows the knee to the Lord Jesus today, they become a subject of His kingdom, and in a sense, in their heart, the kingdom comes. But the real hope for the world is the second coming of the King. When is full and final justice going to come? When is the end of sin and suffering going to come? When is the the full redemption of the, the children of God going to come? When is the new creation going to come in all its beauty and joy? The kingdom will come when the King comes, when Jesus comes, when the end of the world comes. And only God can do that. We know that, don't we? Sometimes Christians will talk about bringing God's kingdom as though it's something we can do. You know, the Bible never actually tells us we can do that. We can point to the kingdom. We can proclaim the kingdom. But we can't bring the kingdom. We can't bring the king. What we can do is pray. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, this is something only God can do. This is God-sized, isn't it? Just imagine what the world would be like if every human being in existence did God's will as it's done in heaven. Now, what is God's will? Well, in the context here in Matthew, just think about the sorts of things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. What would the world be like if there was no such thing as adultery? If there was no divorce, no broken marriages, no broken homes, no devastated children, what would the world be like if everyone always, every single time, turned the other cheek? What if everyone loved not just their friends but their enemies too? What would happen in Israel, Palestine, or in Northern Ireland? You get the point. A world where everyone did God's will all the time would be the most wonderful place to live. And maybe this is why the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 to contains things that people of all kinds of faiths like. You'll be glad to know that chat GPT included the Sermon on the Mount in its top ten speeches of all time. It wasn't at number one, which I had a problem with, but at least it was in there. Even people who don't know the Lord Jesus see some of the beauty of God's will here in this sermon. The beauty of a world filled with love and forgiveness, where everyone did God's will not reluctantly or begrudgingly or out of duty, but notice, as it's done in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, joyfully, delightedly, the way the angels do it, overflowing with joy at doing their master's bidding. Can you imagine a world like that? Can you make a world like that? We can't even make that world in our own homes, let alone across the world. When you think about it, it's another prayer for the end of the world, isn't it? It's a prayer for the new creation where God's will will be done on earth, on the new earth as in heaven. You see how big this prayer is? It is huge. God wants us to pray massive, world-changing prayers. He wants us to pray for the sorts of things that are so vast and so wonderful only he can do them. He does want us to pray small prayers as well, of course. We're going to see that next week, our daily bread. He he cares about the contents of our kitchen cupboard. But this first half is pushing us to pray big, big, gospel, world-changing, history-shaping prayers. Do we pray like this? Dare we pray like this? Why, though, does God want us to pray God-sized prayers? Here are two reasons. I'm sure there are others, and this is where we're going to finish. Just two reasons that God wants us to pray God-sized prayers for you to think about, and then we're done. Here's the first reason. Because they include us. They include us to pray these prayers. And maybe it feels odd to pray about the end of the world and the coming of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. His kingdom will come, won't it? His kingdom will come right on schedule, whether or not I ask for it. Jesus doesn't need my prayers or my permission in order to return in triumph. He doesn't need us at all, but he loves to include us. He's uh, he's like the parent who asks the the toddler or small child to stir the dough before it goes in the oven. They, They can make a cake or whatever it is without their child's help, and in all sorts of ways it would probably be a lot easier without their help, but they love them. They love their son or their daughter and they want them to be included. So that when the the cake comes out and then it's iced and it's finished and everyone's happily tucking into it, the child knows that they they had a part in it, they were included. It's not a great illustration, but it's something like that with us and our Heavenly Father. He doesn't need us, but he loves to include us. And the beauty of prayer like this is that every Christian at every age and stage of life can take part. You're even given the words. My nana was a wonderful woman and a faithful prayer. And in her latter years, she was homebound. Uh, When we'd visit, we'd see a copy of a book called uh, Operation World uh, open on the table. Operation World is a, a book that takes you around the world, telling you the kinds of progress the gospel is making in different countries and how you can pray for it. And my nana could tell us about the country she'd been praying for and the advance of the gospel there. In one sense, her world was closing in as she became less and less mobile, less able to get out. But in another sense, her prayers were expanding and expanding, reverberating around the world. God was answering her God-sized prayers in nations all over the globe. We have prayers like that in our church family here too. Are you one of them? So, Prayers like this include us in the grand thing God is doing, but they also change us. They change us. See, I look at this prayer and I think, you know, these are the sorts of things I want to care about. These are the sorts of things I want to matter most to me. I, I do believe that God's name and His kingdom and His will really are the most important things in all of reality, more important than many of the things I get worked up about. I really do believe that the most important event in human history still to come is the return of the Lord Jesus and the glorious coming of his kingdom. I do believe that, but I forget it. I get wrapped up in my own name and my own reputation, my own kingdom building, if you like, my own life plans, my own will, getting my own way. So how can I care less about my own little kingdom that I'm desperately building and more about his great and glorious kingdom? And part of the answer surely is, pray this prayer. We say, don't we, that prayer changes things? Well, one of the things prayer changes most of all is me and you. See what happens when you pray this prayer and mean it regularly. Pray that God's name would be revered, hallowed, and you'll find yourself caring more and more that God's name would be revered by others, but first of all, by you. Pray that God's kingdom would come, that Christ would return and bring His saving kingdom to earth in full, and you'll find yourself thinking of that day, longing for that day, living for that day. Pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven and it will become your daily goal. It's what you'll want for yourself and for your family and for your church and for the world. So this prayer should come with a health warning. Pray it often and it will change you. God will change you as you pray it. As you pray it, you'll be included in something extraordinary, a a dream, a a true vision of the future, bigger even than Martin Luther King's, a, a cause more Noble, more glorious than Churchill's or Lincoln's. These words will change the world, beginning with you. Let's pray.